The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. You know, this kind of feeling of always being this scrappy kid with rat's nest hair and yeah. thick calluses and shoeless right. in the summer. And yet there I was in Hollywood and everybody thought I was fancy and yeah. the dichotomy of that. And also the feeling that everybody has in Hollywood or the majority of you're only as good as your last film. And when are they going to discover there's this kind of feeling of no matter how successful you got, everybody everybody was always this is the one that's going to make it come crashing down or this is when they're going to discover it's the emperor has no clothes mm. and maybe the emperor has clothes but they all feel like they have no clothes because everybody or a lot of people the reason you're drawn to hollywood is because you want to recreate a new reality not just for yourself but what draws somebody to need to like me to be more comfortable in somebody else's skin than my own for many yeah. years. Yeah. To discover who I was in pretending to be someone else. Hmm. That's actress slash novelist Meg Tilly talking about the world of Hollywood. We talk with Meg about her wild childhood her lifelong love of reading and books, her years as an in-demand, award-winning actress, and what it's like for her now as she reflects on those years and that lifestyle and settles into her new life, quietly and serenely writing pulse-pounding thrillers. Meg Tilly on acting, writing, and Hollywood today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson, back from my vacation, if you care about that kind of thing. Does it really matter where I was? <laughs> a voice in your ear? I was gone for a couple weeks. Did it matter to you? Well, I suppose I'd like to think it matters, at least a little where I am in real life. It reminds me of that line of John Updike's when the interviewer asked him about writing about sex and said something like, you've shown you can elevate the mundane turning trivial things like sex into high art. And Updike just laughed and said, well, it doesn't feel trivial <laughs> when you're doing it. <laughs> I'm off on a tangent, but oh well. Might not matter to you that I was on the road for 10 days. It mattered to me. I was back in Wisconsin visiting some relatives and back in Chicago. Chicago, what a great place. And in fact, it was a return to my youth, in a sense. Not just college, although we went there too. I've talked about college enough. But a return to the Chicago River, where I whiled away the hours working as a deckhand on the architecture tours. Now, recently, I was a passenger, flooded with nostalgia, enjoying the sunset and the cool breeze, enjoying being with my family as they enjoyed the tour. That is an underrated American thing to do, by the way. Go see the Grand Canyon, go watch a Broadway show, 
go swim in the Pacific and wander through the redwoods, but also go see the Chicago skyline from the water. The river that slowly pulls you from the gorgeous shores of Lake Michigan into the heart of a stunning canyon of commerce and art. People have been working at their best, putting together this view for you, designing and building, struggling, living. You can see it all from your secret position on the river. It is highly, highly recommended. Also highly recommended, Meg Tilly. Wow. To have one successful career is more than most of us can ask for. Ms. Tilly has had two. First, she tore up the screen. Well, maybe that's not the right word. She was in that award-winning category of actress more than a, the blockbuster category. She was fortunate in retrospect to be young and working in those years when good movies about grown-up people doing grown-up things were still being made. The Big Chill. I mean, that's... that's a, here's one I didn't ask her about. She was the first choice to play Constanza in Amadeus. Are you kidding me? She had to drop out because she was injured playing soccer. Amadeus, what a movie. You know how much I love that movie. Sometimes I feel like I'm not worthy enough to watch it, let alone be in it. But that was Meg Tilly. But for a quirk of fate, she would have been in it. She had earned that right. She was Agnes of God. My goodness. It's like she was in all the movies that came along when I was learning how good movies could be. And then, what next? Retired, some quiet retreat? Yes, well, sort of. She wound up in the Pacific Northwest, raising a family, sort of in hibernation, except she had a new career as a highly successful novelist. Young adult fiction and now thrillers. Her thriller today, the new, the new one, The Runaway Heiress, is set in Hollywood. Who better to dish the dirt in a literate way than Meg Tilly? Dishing the dirt might sound trivial. Well, it doesn't feel trivial when you're hearing it from Meg. It feels very mature, very human. And might I say, I think there are times when she even delves into the profound. And yet, it's thrilling too. Meg Tilly, after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. 
sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Meg Tilly, an actress whose credits include Fame, Psycho 2, Hill Street Blues, The Big Chill, Valmont, The Two Jakes with Jack Nicholson, and Body Snatchers. Oh, I feel like I'm introducing royalty, which I guess I am, <laughs> Hollywood royalty. More recently, she was in the Netflix movie War Machine starring Brad Pitt, and she may be best known for her Oscar-nominated and Golden Globe-winning performance in the movie Agnes of God. Ms. Tilly is also the author of several novels, and her new book, The Runaway Heiress, tells the thrilling story of a brave woman who finds herself falling for a big-shot film director while trying to stay one step ahead of the man who will do anything to find her. Meg Tilly, welcome to the History of Literature. Uh, Thank you so much, Jack. I appreciate you having me on. <laughs> ah, so I've read that you live in the Pacific Northwest now, and the new book is set in Hollywood, where you've obviously spent some time. But let's go back to the beginning. Where did you grow up? Okay, we grew up all different places, but hmm. in California, in um, we 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 moved a lot because um, we were my parents were trying to stay. My mom was trying to stay one step ahead of the social workers, so mm. we bounced and bounced. So in the twelve years of school, we lived in thirteen different houses. We oh, started wow. in the states, immigrated when I was ten to Canada, and and I've pretty much Canada's been my home ever since. We and we lived in different places here, and then different places there. Mm. So your sister Jennifer is also an actress, and did the moves yes. make the two of you close? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And um, yeah. And my my brother had found a book that my mom, when he was home, when he was you know older, called Cradles of Eminence or something like that. And it was how to with all these parts underlined and it was how to create exceptional children, I guess. And part of it was you move a lot oh, right. <laughs> and, and a lot of different things. He's like, oh, my gosh, all this <laughs> chaos in our life. It was a plan, you know, and maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I mean, you know, mama's passed away now, so who knows? But yeah, um, yeah, it was like, okay, this is what you need to do right down to some of the like, not very happy details. The, the thing about it is, is, you know, was it a curse or uh, in a way a gift, even though you don't see it that way, because it makes you determined not for me, at least not to have that kind of to create and forge my own way to mm. have a different life and also makes you incredibly creative because um, one thing mother always did is we didn't have TV, but we had books. Mm. So we would go to the library every week and we'd check out, each of us would check out our maximum amount of books. And then we would read our books and then trade with, you know, trade with Jen, trade with Becky, trade with, so that we would have all these books and we would read them all. Like we were voracious readers. Yeah. And then we'd go back to the library and, and do the next batch. So, so in those ways, and then she had art. So she, one day she splurged and she went out and she got, you know, canvases and paint and everybody, you know, we were going to, we all had to, we're making things because we lived on this property and people would come and 
hunt uh, because they just thought it was wilderness. But we had a pet deer and people would try to, you know, shoot our deer in, in the, you know, when we were playing with it. So we, she got these things and we made all these signs, you know, paintings of keep out, no trespassing. Hmm. You know, of course, some of, you know, they were more picturesque because we didn't know that it should be stern. But she had, there was creativity in our house all the time. Yeah. You know, we we would, Jen would write plays and we would act them. We would do, you know, my mom was used to be an opera singer before us kids and played violin and viola. And so she would have us learn all the parts for the Gilbert and Sullivan musicals. And then right. she would sing the lead. So, you know. Right. I don't know what your question was. Well, <laughs> I was asking about <laughs> moving around. It? <laughs> it does. Yeah, I was asking about moving around, and it it also yeah. seems to me in developing an exceptional child with a lot of moves. It in in the fields that you've gone into, writing and mm-hmm. acting, requires some some powers of observation of other people, and it seems like yeah. you know constantly being dropped into a brand new society yeah. and, and a new uh, social structure and everything that you would find in those schools would probably really mm-hmm. help develop that, your feeling as a, an observer. Yes, you're, and you're also your feeling of isolation and ties. But the thing is, is that perhaps if you're in one place, it's harder to be like, okay, because I remember moving, it's like, um, okay, who, who, what did I, what mistakes did I make the last time? Mm. And how can I rectify that? Or who am I now? Or, you know, but it was lonely as well. So yes, but it did. I remember you said that make you close all that moving. It absolutely did. You know, my family is my core and that's the family that I've gained and gathered over my life, but also, which is family friends, but that you have the solid core that now, you know, it's like, oh, so lovely to have people that I I know for long periods of time rather than as a child, you know, that constant. So it can make you um, also feel it can give you creativity, but it also can make you feel if you're always trying to a little bit like, who am I? And a little bit like, you don't know the real me and, you know, all of that. But now everybody knows the real me because you know, I, I hit my 40s and I'm like, I'm too tired. <laughs> I'm just going to be me and people will like it and they'll hate it and whatever. You know, I'm just going to I can't I can't do this anymore. So, yeah, I love that idea of reinvention. And I, I grew up in the same small town, living in the same mm-hmm. bedroom in the same house for the first um, 18 years of my life. And I did make some wow. lifelong friends, but I did yeah. kind of miss out on that chance to start over. Uh, until I got to college. And I was really struck when I got to college by the people who came and were determined to reinvent themselves. I don't think I was self-aware enough, but they were really using that as, in fact, some people would say, uh, I'm going to use a different name when I'm here, either a You know, I've I've always been a a Charlie and I want to be a Charles or I've always been a, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and they would have an Asian name and they wanted to use their American name or vice versa. And it Mm. it does seem like being able to do that throughout your adolescence would be quite uh, uh, an opportunity. In hindsight, yes. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) In hindsight, (laughs) as a child and a lot of my adult life, I longed for what I considered normal. I longed mm, for, you yeah. know, for that sense of belonging for people Stability. who had grown up and knew. Ev- yeah. 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 So, and, and, and I have that now, you know, but it right. took me a while to find out how to, because for most of my life, 
for a good portion, not most of mine, because I'm, you know, I'm 61 now, but there was this sense of being outside in, you know, like the little match girl where you're just watching how other people live with your nose pressed up to while people are able to go in and buy the fragrant buns and, 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 and you pretend that you aren't hungry. You pretend that you aren't hungry, not just physically, but emotionally, but, but there is, it's only in hindsight that I can see the, the gifts and the riches, richness of what we had. And, and I am so blessed with my family and it did. Yeah. So, yeah. And I could see how that would be for other people, you know, but I, some people might feel like this is my one chance. I'm going to take a sip of tea. I hope it doesn't bother your show. Oh no, that's fine. Yeah. I, I really, uh, my wife and I bounced around, uh, after I left college, I, I was, I think because I had had so much stability, I was ready for just change. And we, we maybe had something like 15 or 20 different permanent addresses in 10 or 12 years. It was just, we were (laughs) constant, we'd have six month leases, you know, and then it would be time to move in. And you, we really found that it affected the the cycle we were on that we would be in a place and and we would kind of get settled but then we would start to get restless and you sort of start to look forward to the next move or if you encounter any problems you think well this doesn't i just have to ride it out i don't have to deal with the problem because i'll just be leaving it all behind and it took us several years after we bought our house before we which we wanted to do to give our family st- some stability it took us several years before we kind of got out of that mindset of, oh, we're just going to be able to pick up and, and leave and change. Yeah. It must have been, I could imagine that was pretty deeply embedded into your DNA with that kind of a childhood you had. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So what were you doing that that like gave you the ability to be like, okay, so six, six months, okay, let's move now. Okay, we can, where, what were you? What were you guys where? Like, I'm just so curious. Yeah, it was it was constant failure. That... <laughs> <laughs> or it was... stepping stones to where you are now. You know exactly, what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, failure <laughs> so and, and a series of uh, bad decisions following bad decisions. <laughs> I think bad decisions, though, when you look back, when you look back, young man. <laughs> yeah. It's what brings you to where you are. It's only when you do, because you had uh, where it was like uh, you you go and you go and then it's like, okay, I'm going to try this. Okay, I'm going to try that. You have to try a lot of things where we were flung into those bad decisions, you know, in our family early on, but you had the stability. And then it's like trying on different shirts to see, does this fit? Does that? Okay. You know, and then it's like, okay, oh, okay. You know, and then being able to, it, it, it's just, uh, it, it's good because then it's not maybe things that didn't work out, but then you aren't sitting there when you're old saying, I wish I'd tried this or, you know, what we wanted to move. I wish we had or, or, oh, you know, I, I you know, and it also, I think uh, the people that you run into and whatnot, it helps shape you as to who you don't want to be, you know, mm. and the, the, the different like, okay, let's try on this job or this circumstance, and it doesn't fit. It, it's all part of it. Oh, right. That's great advice. Uh, okay, what books were you reading in those early days? Was there a certain kind of book you liked to read? Were you just absorbing everything, or what were right. you taking in? Fiction. I wasn't really that interested in the, like, reading about the sciences or reading right. about the, it was all fiction. It was yeah. all mostly novels. And 
It yeah. was, for me, I think the ones that resonated the most when I was a child were things where people, I guess, where when I think about it, because I'm flashing to different ones, right? So I remember reading Girl of the Limberlost several times. It's, mm. That's an, an old, but she she had a mother who didn't love her, and she was outside. Her clothes were different. Her And it, it's that, I guess, the feeling of outside, and, and she collected... Um, she collected butterflies and then to put herself through school to university. And then her mother, her mother discovered that her, her husband hadn't left her, but he had died. But she also had the flash, like not the flash, because Emily of the new moon had the flash where there would be a knowing where there would be a, mm. you would see something happening. So both of those two, uh, all the Emily of the new moon with Ellen Montgomery and her one, I'd never read that other people had this kind of, where you could see something happening, even though you weren't there playing uh, out just yeah. snatches of. So I think those, but also they both were, didn't, didn't feel loved, felt outside of Emily was an orphan. So there was that, there was also the magic books, all the Oz books. We read them backwards and forwards and forwards uh, and backwards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe ones, you uh, know, the feeling yeah. of, or seven day, uh, not seven, uh, half magic. You know, the ones where there is magic just around the corner yeah. where you can go into a cupboard or you can go and you can enter a magical world. And we did that, a lot of that in our in our life play, too, which was probably also the which pulled me to writing and pulled me to acting is is that creating. Um, yeah. And then and then there were or ones where people did like there was very old, these are. I know you're supposed to be like fancy literature, but these are <laughs> these are ones that it's the books that sh- shape me or the Blue Castle, another Ellen Montgomery book where she went to a doctor and she was having a funny kind of thing with her heart. And he had to race out because something happened to his son and he sent her a letter saying that you have, I can't remember, five, six months, you're, you're going to die. Hmm. It was just very, you know, and. But he had actually sent her the letter that went was for someone else, and someone else he had he got mixed up in the post. Anyway, she changed her life. She's yeah. just like I haven't lived, but I haven't lived because she was in living in her aunt's house. She's a charity relative, really, and she just decided to say what she thought and to do. And she lived fully, and she knew it was only a, a short period of time, but it wasn't. But then time passed. And she hadn't passed away. And so it's, I think it's always that it's, and that one really affected me because I, I had think about it, like live now, speak yeah. now, don't, yeah. you know, so it was things that spoke to me as a child that did, you know, and then there's different ones too. Like I'm, I'm all these books are coming to mind, like um, all of a kind family. It's a fair, it's an old book about these children. And again, it's all the sisters and they, they sleep at night. And since we lived and slept in the attic and we would have conversations about food and about this and about that, it reminded me of that. And yeah. they would get their allowance. We didn't have allowance, but they would go and they would get candies and, and they would nibble their candies and make it last, you know, things like that. Yeah. Is there a yeah. sense when you have a childhood where you're moving around a lot, when you read and reread a book that the books are almost like the the friends, you know, that 100. Yeah. Yeah. That, like you're, yeah, you've got you're chaos. So of, yeah. Chaos yes. of something new, but you return to a book and it's like, oh, this is familiar. And this is, this is a yes. little source of stability for me. Yes. 
Yes, 100%. All and all the Louise May Alcott books, mm. Rose and Bloom, and you know, the, the yeah. ones where they the families had hardships, or or like um, the Jane Austen books, where you know, the, the families and the interplay, and where, where it's it, there's a realness to it, but yet there's a safety too, like not too bad of things happen. Mm-hmm. And sometimes really bad things happen. I don't know if you ever read, there was a book called Behold Your Queen. It was Gladys Mulvern that I read as a, as like I was maybe 13, 14. She was Queen Esther and she, and reading about how she saved her people and, you know, stuff like oh, that. Yeah, you just read yeah. it. I'd always cry when she was approaching him in the, in the throne room and they did become my friends. My books were, and I think the books were the key to another life for yeah, me. When I right. would go to schools and stuff, I, I would talk about that because it's a it's a passport into there's another way to live than the way we were. Yeah. There's another way to be. Oh, this is what you do. This is what, you know, right. and, and that continues on. So it, it shows you paths you can take and paths not to take and and it's old friends and it's comforting and 100% we'd move to new place and I would read new books, but I would also read the old favorites yeah, over and over. Right. Did you do that? Hmm. Okay. Let's pause there. The tables have been turned. The interviewer becomes the interviewee. At least for one question. Luckily, this is a subject where I'm more than happy to prattle on, as you will hear in a moment. You might wonder where this interview is headed. Don't worry, dear listeners, it is headed toward greatness. Well, I suppose that's up to you to decide, but I'm comfortable saying that Meg Tilly is pretty great in her answers. Coming up, if this doesn't make you like Meg Tilly, and by like I mean respect and admire, well, you might be suffering from my family's congenital defect, which is that they accumulate wax in their ears. Every few years, my father and my mother and my sister all have to go to the doctor to get wax blown out. It's never happened to me. I am the waxless wonder. That's what they call me under their breath. Muttering, oh sure, the waxless wonder. Laugh it up, happy boy. Enjoy your life of ease while we sit here. Our ears cranking out too much wax like a bunch of sorry melting candles. They mutter that, but their muttering is very loud, and I can hear them from a mile away. I once told them that Odysseus put wax in the ears of his crew to block out the sweet sound of the sirens, which I thought might lift their spirits to know that their ailment had such a fine pedigree. My enthusiasm was, as usual, greeted with a stony silence. Being a waxless wonder is not easy, my friends, and yet I persist. What is easy is returning to our conversation with Meg Tilly, which we will do after this break.
I would read new books, but I would also read the old favorites yeah, over and over. Right. Did you do that? Yes. Uh, well, you know, I was always in the same place. But for me, right. it was kind of like I have such vivid memories of the different times of year, the different seasons, mm. or, you know, I can remember checking a book out of the library, especially the books, not so much the books I owned, which I just read and reread and reread, mm -hmm. uh, but the books that I would check out from the library and, and I would maybe bring them home on a Friday evening and it got dark yeah. early in the winter. And I can remember walking home thinking, uh, because of course I walked home starting in kindergarten back then. <laughs> You know, yeah, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so I can remember walking home as it was getting dark and just thinking, I can't wait to climb into bed and read this book, especially if it was a book that I had already read or or maybe it was yeah. the latest Ramona book. I can remember the, yeah. oh. the, the school librarian <laughs> used to save. The, she knew how much I loved oh. the Ramona book. So the new Ramona book would come out and, and it'd be like, oh, I get to go spend time with Ramona and Beatrice yeah. and just the feeling of... Um, of comfort and and like visiting my old friends yeah uh yes all the beverly cleary books yeah. forwards and backwards backwards and forwards and then you have like the the young adult ones the 15 i read that book so many times mm, you know about yeah. stan and the but yes ramona with her and the curls that went boing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she had to pull <laughs> oh yeah uh, okay oh, so let's that. say you are let's say you're 12 years old and i'm interviewing you for the school newspaper and i say uh young meg what do you want to be when you grow up uh what is oh. your answer to that i always wanted to be a ballet dancer mm. but i mean yeah. that was always ever since i was little and i got to see a ballet when i was around uh my my mom she took me to san francisco with my sisters and her friend, who she had gone to university with, danced in the San Francisco Ballet. And I remember being in this big room, and she was showing us some steps, and she she said to my and she stretches and stuff. And, and I got to see her dance, and she was so beautiful. And she said to my mom, she would be a beautiful ballet dancer. She has wow. a good body for it. And I, since that moment, that was like my special thing in a family of like, <laughs> you know, Six, six blood and, and stepbrothers and sisters, it was my thing. So if my brothers yeah. and sisters wanted to play cops and robbers or whatever, I would yeah. do, but then they'd have to play ballet dancers <laughs> where I would figure out how to stand on my tippy toes in my shoes and, and put a petticoat on from the Salvation Army and twirl around with my arms in my head. So I always wanted to be a ballet dancer, but yeah. we couldn't afford it. And we moved all the time. And then um, when I turned 14 we moved to a town that had ballet and and um and i i said can i take ballet and my mom talked to my grandmother my grandmother paid for me to have lessons and even though when we were at that place we moved from in a lot of different houses we stayed in the area and so i got to take ballet and it changed my life yeah. so i would have i ballet is what i wanted to do but i wouldn't have had the guts to say it because when i was 12 I was little Miss Tuffy and I was, you know, whatever you weren't allowed to wear to school, that's what I'd wear. And I'd jut my hip out and I'd sass people. And mm. I would, I was, you know, in, experimenting with, uh, well, I was drinking and experimenting with drugs. And, you know, I was like, I was going to be the baddest person in the world. And that was what I was. And then when we moved, I, I saw the path that it was taking me. And when we moved at, at 13, I made a shift and I, I didn't have any friends for uh, that next year. And then when we moved, I got to be, and I remember because then 
my friends that I made at the new school would start doing things that I had done way sooner. And they all were like, oh, you're such a goody two-shoes. And then, you know, I had a few years in the library, but I knew where that led and that's not where I wanted to go. So, um, again, the reinventing oneself. That's so interesting. Oh, why? Well, I'm just, I'm so fascinated by the idea of you always having this dream of being a ballet dancer, but not developing a kind of uh, demure, uh, you know, Mm. quiet, pristine persona and appearance and all of that and kind of uh, following that path of of trying to look like a ballet dancer or act like a, a ballet dancer of you know quiet smiles and and yeah. uh, downturned <laughs> eyes and and that kind of thing. Um, it it just seems like uh, you were really following uh, a couple of different paths there that uh, eventually did kind of come together. I don't know what your persona was mm-hmm. like, but you you were successful as a ballet dancer as you got yeah. into your older teens, right? Right. Well, when I started, yeah, I started. So I started, I was almost 14, almost 15, which is really late to start because you should start when you're 10. Yeah. Um, but I just took all the classes. I was first put in a class that was like around a grade below me, a couple people in my class. And I remember they would try to push me to the front and they'd laugh at me because I didn't know how to do anything. But I also thought, I don't know the steps. And I didn't know the steps. And the teacher would yell, why are you in the front? But i I just didn't know what to do, but I took all like I took the five-year-old classes, even they shouldn't have five-year-old classes, but they do. You know, I took the eight-year-old, the 10-year-old, I took the young adult classes. I took all the classes after school. I just went there and I stayed there because you could take as many classes as you like, you would pay uh, by the month. And I just took all the classes and within two years, I was winning scholarships and going to summer workshops. And then I moved to New York and I was on scholarship there and it was yeah. a it was a remarkable time, but I didn't start till late. Your career as a dancer ended when yeah. you were filming the movie Fame. I read where you somebody yeah. dropped you. Yes, and not in Fame. I was um, I was on full scholarship with Melissa Hayden. I had been with uh, Madame Darvash, and then I was shooting Fame, and um, and that was really fun. And that's when I switched over to Melissa Hayden, and I was in a pas de deux class and my partner dropped me, dropped my leg stayed up and he, we, he fell on me and I fractured my back and mm. that was the end of my ballet career. Mm. And it opened a career for acting. Yes, because I'd been in fame and I got, and they had me in and I got, I, I yelled something when we were on the street scene, but then they had me in cause they had heard about it and they had me in to do looping. And um, that was what gave me the ability. Cause at those days that, was enough to be able to get my SAG card. And Mm. I didn't know what a SAG card was, but they told me this is so that you can, you know, if you want, it gives you other options. And then, but then I, so I didn't know what that was, but I did know I could act because every time we moved and we decided to be someone new or when the social workers came and we had to be happy, happy, everything's wonderful here. I, you know, I knew how to act. And when I saw what the actors were doing on fame, I'm like, why do they get paid more? What we're doing is way more difficult. (laughs) (laughs) And so I moved to, then I didn't know what to do. I mean, when I first was injured, I thought it was God telling me that I was going to die. So I went back, back home and um, was doing physiotherapy. And I just figured that I didn't know how it was going to happen, but of course there's no life without ballet. It had become my everything. Um, 
it was everything that I did. I didn't even go to my own graduation like celebration because I had ballet the next day. Yeah. So I, I was really nice to everybody. And six months later, I wasn't dead and, and I could walk without pain pretty much. And, and I was like, Oh, I must have misunderstood. And so Jen said, come to LA. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try acting. Yeah. Cause you know, little sisters copy what they're, you know, oh, big sisters right. do. Yep. Yeah. So I went to LA and we, Jen and I, I lived with Jen for a bit and she told, Shot, showed me the ropes and I got into a play and I got my wonderful acting teacher and, and I became an actress. Oh, okay. So I wanted to ask you now that we're up to the point where you're an actor, I wanted to, I've never had the chance to ask anybody this about your mm -hmm. life as a reader, because I know mm -hmm. you like reading novels and I know that that mm -hmm. was a part of your past and it was a part of your, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's what you're doing now writing novels, but mm -hmm. Uh, my guess is you spent a, a good chunk of your life reading scripts. And yeah. I wanted to ask if you also had room to read novels or if reading oh, yeah. scripts took up most of your time. No, no, 100%. Because yeah. still, I didn't, have, I didn't have TV. Reading was oh, like, yeah. well, I had TV when I, went to, when I moved with Jen because it was part of the package in the room in the little apartment. So yeah. you had a black and white TV. So I was first in, that was when I was first introduced to all those things that my friends had watched, <laughs> but no, I still read voraciously. I had a library card and then I, um, I did read scripts, but I, because I was a ballet dancer and I did the ballet and then I went right into acting. I still wanted to continue reading, but adult books. So I'd read, I worked my way through all the, you know, in the bookstores where they have the classics, yeah. So I, I basically just worked my way through all of those and I, I would read scripts, but also because it just fills it filled me in a way that mm. movies or things like that didn't. It's it's still my go to. I still am a voracious reader. Yeah. And I just read and read and what I do is I find an author that I like and then I read everything that they ever have written. And you are introduced to authors in different ways. Yeah. Like um we did I was in a writing retreat once and they said write a piece in the style of your favorite author and this one uh writer wrote this piece and she said it, it was um oh gosh now i can't remember the guy's name raven chandler and i was like raven chandler i i never i hadn't read his stuff but yeah. i loved her piece and so i went and i read everything that he'd ever written or then because just because it was like it reminded me the people and it reminded me of the adults in in the communities that I grew up in and the life that I grew up in. So I find ways and then, and then there was something on his that had a blurb from Charles, whatever his name was, Bukowski or whatever. I'm really yeah. terrible name. So I read everything that he had read, all, all that visa, but that wasn't normally stuff that I would read. So my thing as a reader went there. And then as I, my children, I had children like you did. And all of a sudden the world seemed even scarier it seemed like uh i had to first stop reading the newspaper because my husband first husband read the newspaper and i read the newspaper every day to be well read and you'd read whoever the popular the books were that were on the you know that won the prizes and whatnot but mm -hmm. then i was busy and i could read i had to read scripts or i also was doing plays like i was uh, going acting to the acting to the loft studio with Peggy Fury. And Peggy Fury had you, so if you were working on a Pinter scene, you don't just read that one play. You read everything 
he's written mm. because you'll find the common thread of the writer in all the different plays. Yeah. So when this is mentioned, it means that. Or what does when does he put the dot 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 in and why? You know, so you would start to so that like was how I read anyway my books. So if you're working on, you know, Shaw, if you're working on Shakespeare, if you're working on Ingmar Bergman, then you read all of them or you like Ingmar Bergman, he was actually one that wasn't we read we worked on even though he was films and not playwrights because his films were so beautifully crafted and so we'd do the screenplays but that was the only one she did and then those things would lead you to so i remember doing working on the seagull uh, and the checkoff and then that's what introduced me to checkoff and i first had done the cherry orchard and i didn't understand it but then something clicked in the seagull and then it was like oh oh <sighs> And then after that, it's like everything check off, you know, it's like you yeah. recheck off. And then, um, but then I, I shifted to short stories because you could only read in snatches. Mm -hmm. And I was the kind of reader that would open a book and gallop through it and just read it, read it or savor through it, but read from start to finish and just everything else would fall away. And I, you can't with small children. So I kind of transitioned to short stories and yeah. read, you know, and so then this Andre de Boos, you know, it's like Charles Baxter. It's like all these, you know, and, and um, Alice Monroe, you know, you just find mm -hmm. all these people. And then there was another woman. Oh, where was she from? South Africa. I can't remember her name now. But you just read all these different things. And then and then I transitioned. I was the world got very scary. And I, I picked up uh, Amanda Quickbook, which is Jane Ann Krentz. And it was so fun. And yeah. they had a happy ever after, you know, because a lot of times, like you read about, you know, Anna Karina and she, you know, right, well, you know, it's like, right. okay. And I'm like, oh, that's me. That's me. I've got to stay away from trains. <laughs> you know, That's me in my marriage now, you know? <laughs> so then I just started reading and I loved it. And, you know, reading Nora Roberts and reading all yeah. these, you know, and it had some history thrown in. It was just fun. And, yeah. and, and so now I'm like an unabashed, a reader of those types of books and and it's i used to get the other books still i you know but but that's what i read and and finance books like there was a big period where i you know read hundreds and hundreds of because i'm like okay i've quit acting i've got to figure out how to save the money that i've earned and how to make it grow and so i read like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of finance books and <laughs> figured out what I need to do and because money terrified me growing up so poor yeah. and then my first husband had so much debt and it wasn't after I quit acting but it was after my second marriage and I was like I have to learn figure out how to do that when I was 40 41 so people out there if you're like oh I don't understand finance I didn't I didn't yeah. understand it like I would get cold sweats I would it was like it was like na 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 in my ears like like I'm, I don't know my multiplication tables. I never went to grade three and four. I can't know finance bullshit. Anybody can, you just have to apply yourself and you just have to, in the beginning, I wouldn't understand. And I just take a yellow highlighter and I'd highlight things that seemed important and put post-its and, and then I would read. And then after a while, something just shifted. And it was like, all of a sudden, all this weird stuff they're talking about made a kind of sense. And hmm. Like with anything, I, that's what I just want to say to people. That's as important too. And, and yeah. you know, when you're young and especially when you don't have, you think, oh, I, I can't talk about this kind of thing. Oh, it's low, low class to talk about money or, or, or to, to worry where your finances are, how you're going to pay for something. No, no, just, just keep, just, just do it. You know, it'll sort itself out. No, yeah. that, that is very important and figuring it out 
we work so hard for it. We should know what happens. We should know what happens and make decisions, conscious decisions about how we want to spend the money that we spent our life hours working to obtain. Yeah. And if we want to save it for safety or if it's going to be sprees, but you know, people have to think about that. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I've anyway, heard that's not what we were supposed to talk about, but yeah, I that's don't know okay. where we got there. Well, but... we got to get to your book at some point, but I, I did oh, want to oh, right. say, uh, I have heard uh, a lot of stories about professional athletes and how a lot of them will come from situations where they have no money and suddenly they have a lot of it. And then, you know, it's either misspent or mismanaged and a lot mm-hmm. of it is trusting the wrong people and so on. But that mm-hmm. must be something that you've seen happen a lot in Hollywood as well. Everybody, not everybody, but the majority live on a shoestring. Mm. It doesn't matter how much money people made. It's like a lot of people. Some people make so much that there's, you think there's no way they can go through it. But people you wouldn't even expect, people you wouldn't even expect, like, you know, in Hollywood, big stars, heads of studios, you know, because they, they, if they think we, this is how it's going to be forever. You might have one or two films where you make a lot of money, but if those films don't do well, that's it. Like that's it, you know, people. And also people see like huge sums of money that people make, but you have to think you've got the, the business manager that takes, I can't remember because I don't have those people now, but the five or 10%, the lawyer that does it, the yep. agent that takes 10%. If you have a, if you have a manager, an acting manager, they take 15%. All of that shrinks it down and you've got taxes. So some of that's tax deductible, but the actual amount people bring home is much less. Now the um, athletes, they have in the last few years, they have really changed the way they do things. And they now have uh, fiscal workshops for yes. athletes and things I, like that because yeah. Right. You would read about people who would have huge careers. In, oh, a hundred you know, million dollars. Or and it's, yeah, yes. gone. And on. two, three years later, gone. Yeah. Gone. Yeah. You know, they should do the same thing for uh, lottery winners, although I guess it's not their responsibility. But you see it time and time again, people making all this money and spending it and it destroying their lives and being broke five years later. Right. You know, I remember being at a party and uh, people got a little tipsy. And these were like, Big, 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 huge, huge. Like everybody knew their name in Hollywood. It started confessions. Like somebody said, you know, I could on credit manage six months, six months, and then I'd be homeless. Meanwhile, they're building a theater. This was before people built theaters in their house. They're turning, transforming their basement into a theater and doing, and it's like, are you kidding me? It's such a volatile career. So so, let's, let's talk a little bit about Hollywood because your book is set there. And that was one of the questions I had for you is uh, Hollywood as a setting. I mean, from the outside, I could see it going in a few different directions. On the one hand, it's got this incredible glamour and just the whole glitz and gloss of it. On the other hand, it's it it can seem kind of ridiculous or, you know, like there's this disparity in wealth. You have the mm-hmm. the uh, the different Hollywoods of people who are just grinding it out and people who are the golden boys, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and on the rise and so on. So mm-hmm. what appealed to you about Hollywood as a setting for your book, The Runaway Heiress? I, had, I hadn't known it was going to be Hollywood. When I first started it, I knew I was going to do uh, in the, my Fall of Silence series, the last book, Hidden Cove, there was a woman who appeared, not that much. She was a minor player in that story. She worked at an art gallery, but my readers kept saying, 
we need Mary's story. What happened to Mary? We need Mary's story. But Mary Browning, that was a fake name for her because she was on the run from her abusive husband. And I didn't know where, I, so I thought it's impossible. How do you write a book where the woman, where your readers know her as one name, so that's where your reference point is, where she's on the run and she's she's taken on a new name because she had to leave the last place because she's on the run and you have her real name. Like how can you have somebody who has, is, it's going to be just too confusing for the readers. How are mm. they going to, I thought I couldn't do it, but I thought I got so many readers saying, Oh, please, please. We need Mary's story. You can't just leave us hanging like that. That I thought, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go, but I don't really don't think it's going to work. And I had a couple other places where she ended up like actually the first place where I got around 40 pages in the guy was, uh, he owned, uh, he was working the head of a, a automobile parts company <laughs> Yeah. And, and she applied for a job as a, and they, but it just wasn't working. And so I like, okay, well, and, and so that, that guy didn't work for her. It's sort of like a, a dating, you know, buffet or whatever. It's like, Who's going to work? And then all of a sudden, Mick started talking to me. Like, I just wrote a scene with, with him. Yeah. And it turned out, it's way different than it was. But I was like, what if? And I, was, I thought of a certain uh, actor that I knew. What if? Oh, my gosh. What if she showed up and instead of being a sex, she's like, you stop. She has to get it. You know, so she's going to, she has to be a personal assistant. And I thought of this uh. person. I was like, oh, my gosh. And so I wrote a scene with him. And it was it was it's very different than than what it is now but there still is that but the minute i found mick i just was like oh and i thought you can't you can't have somebody like this be like in this genre of books he can't be the you know but i i couldn't help yeah. it he just made me laugh yeah and then and, and then he's, I dug the, he's a director and he right. changed he's a director he's yeah. not an actor yeah of course you aren't gonna write people you know but yeah. i use somebody as taking off place he's a director but yeah. and then i use uh, things that i knew as the kicking off place but then mick became somebody else it was why i had connected with this uh, certain person even though i wasn't at that point in my life saying yeah i i come from a challenging childhood too so all of a sudden mick in a way is part b he's like this huge director the golden boy of hollywood but there's that part in him that was always you know, nose pressed against the glass looking in. And he, mm. he he grew up in a brothel and trying, being at school and seeing, you know, like where he's got the school lunches and somebody get, opens his lunch and makes fun of it. But, you know, that was me, you know, I <laughs> said peanut yeah. butter sandwiches too. You know, this kind of feeling of always being this scrappy kid with rat's nest hair and yeah. thick calluses and shoeless right. in the summer. And yet there I was in Hollywood and everybody thought I was fancy and yeah. the dichotomy of that. And also the feeling that everybody has in Hollywood or the majority of you're only as good as your last film. And when are they going to discover there's this kind of feeling of no matter how successful you got, everybody, everybody was always, this is the one that's going to make it come crashing down. Or this is when they're going to discover it's the emperor has no clothes. Mm. And maybe the emperor has clothes. But they all feel like they have no clothes because everybody or a lot of people, the reason you're drawn to Hollywood is because you want to recreate a new reality, not just for yourself, but what draws somebody to need to, like me, 
to be more comfortable in somebody else's skin than my own for many yeah. years. Yeah. To discover who I was in pretending to be someone else, in slipping on these characters. And so that's what I thought was an interesting backdrop. And then you have, well, she was Mary Browning, and then she's going, she's, you know, but her real name's Sarah Rainsford. You have her who came from everything that me as a kid, you know, she's an heiress, like huge, huge heiress. But everything that I was like, oh, my nose pressed to the glass would see somebody like her, perhaps in a magazine or in a book and, and be like, oh, she might, or a newspaper, she must have the most magical, lucky life. And yet she's on the run because her life didn't give her the street smarts to know to avoid the guy who tricked her into getting married. So you, you think always, and I think that's maybe a common theme in a lot of my books, is you look at other people and you measure yourself against their yardstick. And there's the me, the writer, who's saying, dig a little deeper, look a little closer. Everything is not, not what it seems. And yeah. so you have these two people who are, who, uh, you know, and, and, and then, and, but then luckily, they, you know, there's twist, lots of twists and turns because money can make people view people differently too. So that's a, a cage of a different sort. You know, yeah. it's a gilded cage. And so money and Hollywood, like do, it's the same question, I think, that comes up in the book. What do people like me for? You know, do they like Nick because he's this big director and can make or break careers and, you know, earn lots of money for the studios, you know? Yeah. Her, is she just dollar signs on her for, tattooed on her forehead that has actually taken away everything that she loves. Uh, well, it's clearly a world that you know so well. It's it's uh, the, <laughs> the novelist Ian McEwan said, you know, he needs to know enough that he has room to splash around when he's writing a novel. Yes. And it, it seems like once you combine the characters with the Hollywood setting, it gave you that mm -hmm. freedom of, oh, I know how this works. I know how I can yeah. make these scenes work and I know who I can put in them. Yes, although writers who are listening know that I didn't know how it worked <laughs> as yeah. I was writing it. There were a million times I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing and oh, I don't know if this works. <laughs> and it wasn't right. only now, like, and you're like, I don't. And then every once in a while I get that thrill on you and they're just there and they're living and you're writing. And I was also like, oh, I, I just, you know, you have this doubt, like, is anybody going to want to read this? But, yeah. but you, you can't help. So you know, if, if you don't be like right off the bat, like I know how, I never know how it is until, until it works. Right. Until I do enough rewrites that I'm like, oh, oh. And then all of a sudden you write something like, oh, that. And then you have to go back and write in, you know, so just so you guys know, it's, uh, yeah. some people do though. Some people have the whole thing and they just dive in and they write from start to finish and then they send it to their editor. But I'm not one of those lucky ones or yeah. unlucky ones, however you want to call it. Let me ask you something about writing and acting. I, what I'm hearing okay. from you is there's a real similarity here between uh, acting where you're still you, but you're inhabiting somebody else and you're in a different persona. But in some ways, you're kind of tied to your, your physical body and your physical appearance and so on. Writing, on the other hand, you can inhabit a character and be whoever you want. You could be a man, you could be an old man, you could be a young person, you can do all of that. Do you feel like there's a connection for you in the creative process in losing yourself in another person, but still kind of being able to put some of yourself into that character when you're writing a novel? Yeah, yes, yes, you lose yourself. I, I found, I lost, okay, so you're like, you're, 
limited by who you are. And yes, yes, in a way you are. But I didn't realize that when I first started out. Mm. When I first started out acting, I would imagine these characters and I'd climb inside their body and I'd see the world through their eyes. And I saw them as, oh, they're this. And I would always, like, it would be such a disappointment when I would have to go to the opening and I'd see it. I'd be like, oh my God, that's just my big old face there. Up on screen. That, oh no, that's my mouth. Oh, what? Oh, you know? And so it was, it, it was like a, a shock and it was yeah. a real shock when people started recognizing me. Like the first time people started oh, recognizing me yeah. was after cycle two and a guy who was packed in the grocery store. And I'm like, but no, that was her. Like I thought, people wouldn't recognize me because I was somebody else. Like I yeah. had that childlike thing of this is who I am now. I'm a princess or whatever, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, well, that's, so that, that was a surprise. That's the other thing that I wondered about is it has to do with celebrity because as I was doing research for this interview, I'm sure you're used to this by now, but it kind of jumped out at me. I, I Googled you and I ran across an article that was in People magazine and the Google link to the article said, Tilly inside her quiet life now, which seemed yeah. like a nice, you know, harmless enough yeah. uh, link. And then I click on the link and the giant headline says, Meg Tilly hated being hit on in Hollywood. Why her quiet <laughs> life now on an island with an exclamation mark couldn't be more different. And, you know, God love People Magazine. They're they're good folks there. And the article uh -huh. itself was very charming. And, and yeah. you came across really well. And I guess it's uh -huh. better than having the National Enquirer saying that you're a space alien or something. <laughs> but it, it just felt intrusive to me. And it felt like uh, there must be some part of you that feels like you didn't have control. And uh -huh. I'm wondering if writing is a way of exerting some control. You're you're in charge of the world that you're making and the people are going to do what you want and you're the definitions of them are going to be something that comes out of your typewriter. And is there a feeling that yeah. that being a novelist, one of the benefits is having more control over this kind of definition? I think, yeah, I think that the thing about being a novelist is when I would act in a film, I would sometimes you'd be like, Oh, well, oh no, why did they use that take? No, no, no. Mm, you know, yeah. you, you or, or or you have no control over the way it's lit or the way it's cut or the music where it's like, no, no, right. that music, you know, whereas yep. whereas as a novelist, you do have a certain amount of, of control in as much as you can set the mood. So if you're feeling it's like a I feel my way through my book. So if it's like, oh, then you, you set set it, you get to you choose the different places, but they kind of, as an author, I wish I had maybe sometimes a bit more, but sometimes my characters all have an idea. Like I'll say, okay, this is where we're going and this is what's going to happen. And this is, and the characters, once I get into it, they're like, ah, 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 mm, because, yeah. it, because what I had all crafted <laughs> out was contrived or didn't suit yeah, who they are now. Right. And I have to change it. So, so I have a certain amount of control and I have control what I love about writing as opposed to acting because there's things that are fine about acting and that I've learned so much and I'm very grateful to. And every once in a while, I will do a little thing here or there for just for fun. But what I love about it is I don't have to wait for permission to write, you know, as yeah. acting in acting, you have to be uh, tapped. You have to go. Yep. And so there's people who are beautiful actors who 
might be out of fashion or might be. And I'm Mm -hmm. so grateful that I had crafted a life for myself uh, before I got to that time or stage or age where your worth was on things that you have no control over or people try to take control over. But the aging process is what it is. And I love I am so grateful that I've gotten to the age I am, and I hope I have the privilege to get older. Yeah. But I, I don't want to forget what age I am and what I've lived through, and I'm proud of the person that I've become. Yeah. Because finally, the person that I've become, I've allowed myself to have human fragilities and flaws and be like, that's okay, too. And in, in being able to have compassion for myself and let go of this idea that you have to be a totally enlightened, perfect person, then I have much, am able to have much more understanding and a kind of more gentle, like a compassion and uh, for other people not being perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, people not being like, you know, when you think like, I would never do that to a friend. It's like, but yeah, you have to take a step back and say, but maybe there's things that other friends do for you that you don't even think of doing. And to just be like, are they a friend? Yes. Do you mm. love them? Yes. Okay, then that's that. That's all there is to it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting being this phase of life. And I'm so grateful that I don't have to spend a large majority of my time trying to erase the life that I've lived on my face, on my body, on my that that I just am what I am, mm. and that's okay. Yeah. Uh, that is, it is beautifully put. And all my life I've regretted that we don't get to see women aging gracefully on the screen and, and getting more age-appropriate parts. There's so many good actors, and I just love seeing their faces as they change and grow mm. and, and, and age. And I learned so much from them and their interpretation of great scripts. And my hope is that that's changing a bit now with streaming services and, and the, the number of different outlets that because we're not as tied to, you know, Hollywood blockbusters that we'll maybe see. Do you, do you think that's true or am I just being overly optimistic? It might be. I have noticed there's been a few times in the last month, month and a half, where there's been interest for me for several things where the character's were quite interesting. I, I'm mm. not. I'm not looking for anything right now. So I had, but but it was nice to receive those scripts and to yeah. for people to say there's interest and would would you be interested in meeting or putting yourself on tape? There seems to be a flurry a couple of times a year. But what I did find was both of these things, just because something that's going on in private life and also the pandemic, <laughs> mm. yeah. you know. But there, I was like, oh, she sounds interesting. Oh, yeah. Oh, I like where they definitely, both of them, were something that I would have been quite happy to throw my hand in the ring for. But I'm busy, and, and it's, right now it's not a good time for me. Yeah. So maybe, you know, with all the different stuff, and, and also with the streaming services, it seems like it's not just one type of thing or another. But right. if you do look at the majority of things, the majority of parts, you can have a guy who's my age or in the 50s or yeah. in the 70s who's a lead, but the woman will generally be in her 20s or 30s, the, the leads. They just will be. And yeah. that's okay because, you know, maybe they found that's what more people want to watch. It's like at a certain age for a woman, to a lot of people, you become invisible. 
And yeah. to some people, it's it's a real it's a real heartbreak. They're all of a sudden they aren't getting those looks or having whatever the thing is that made them feel like uh, alive and a woman and seen. I was fine with it. It didn't. It, I wasn't having any kind of grieving because I'd had a lot of that attention when I was a young actress, and it was a bit challenging. And I didn't like hurting people's feelings, but I also didn't like being put in awkward positions of whatever. Mm-hmm. So I hope that there are, because I think that people of all ages and, and women of all ages have a lot to offer, but maybe it's part of that whole, um, you know, men can propagate until they die. Mm. You know, women hit a certain age and oh, right. uh, so maybe there's... that pheromone isn't coming off. And so the people who are making decisions, they aren't making decisions they, like on purpose, but right. the, when they see a certain person or an actress come across their thing and it gives them that kind of zing, this is it. Maybe it's their subconscious testosterone or whatever female, like that's, that's, yes, that's, that's a vital woman. That's a, their own prejudice against themselves that's coming into play and helping make those decisions, not on purpose, but, but the things that make them sit up and, and so that's what people take, uh, what people want, want. And yeah. it's a business first and foremost. And so you're going to do, you're going to do what's going to sell tickets. Right. So, you know. Well, as someone who declared 20 years ago that I had seen enough comic book movies and didn't care if I ever saw another superhero movie or a comic book movie, I am aware <laughs> that Hollywood is not aiming their, uh, <laughs> their movies at me. <laughs> but so some of the streaming services, there's some very interesting yeah. things coming out. You know, there's some very interesting shows that, that you can watch that have excellent, like beautiful cinematography and the costumes and the acting mm. and the scripts are you know, so so it's there for people. I, I yeah. mean, I don't watch that much TV, but I have come across a couple while we've been, you know, in lockdown, and and it's very impressive. So you know, who knows? But but yeah. again, mostly the women are younger, but that's okay too because I'm happy to watch them. You know, right, right. So okay, well, I've kept you too long, but we have two more things to do. Uh, I'll try to be very okay. fast if that's okay. No, I've okay. had fun. The first is our honorarium in appreciation for appearing on the History of Literature. We have a two-part uh-huh. honorarium for you. First, we'd like to send you a book of your choice. Is there anything currently on your wish list? Oh, 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 that's so nice. I actually, when anything gets on my wish list, I buy it right away. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, terrible. Then I just donate <laughs> copious amounts of books to the library. But that's very kind of you. Maybe, you know, maybe that could go to... Uh, you know, ah. somebody else. Okay. Thank well, you so much. Sure. Well, the second thing is we'd like to donate to a charitable organization on your behalf. So we'll just double our, our, our okay. donation there. Aww. Which organization Aww, should we support? I'm, well, I noticed you're doing the setting up libraries in Africa. Yes, we had, I think that's uh, so wonderful. yes, we had some friends, uh, some friends of the show who appeared to talk about the African Library Project, which uh, was started when a woman was visiting Africa and saw an empty library, I believe, and said, um, you know, these shelves could use some books. And they uh, set up a project where all the libraries are built and just waiting. And the African Library Project uh, takes donations and and a lot of kids are putting these together from books from school libraries and so on. And and sending the books over there so that kids, school children, have uh, books to read novels. And I'm sure it'll be a lot yeah. of the books that you grew up reading, The, the Lion, the Witch, yeah. and the Wardrobe, and 
and books yeah. like that. So it is a wonderful it's such organization. An thing you're doing that's such an important thing because libraries change lives. Yeah. Libraries help you craft who you want to be. They show you different worlds, and I just think I just think it's a wonderful thing you're doing. So yes, pop okay. it in there. We will do that. Yeah. Okay. The last thing Thank we have you. is a surprise bonus question. Oh, okay. <laughs> Are you ready? Yes. Okay. One day, you give an endless series of interviews about your latest novel and fall oh. into bed exhausted. When oh. you awake, there is a genie sitting at the end of your bed. She tells you oh. that your new book, The Runaway Heiress, is going to be made into a movie. She's here to offer you a couple of options. Option one <laughs> is maximum, maximum control. For the next year, you will executive produce... The production, every detail will be subject to your approval and you will have the ultimate responsibility. You can direct if you'd like or hire a director, but nothing will happen without your consideration and approval. In option two, <laughs> the film gets made by capable people. You have zero responsibility or involvement. You can spend your time writing your next book. Which option do you choose? Oh, dear. <laughs> That's so hard. That's so hard because, you know, I've sold quite a few screenplays. Yeah. And I think, I think capable people are good people. If it's just capable, okay, you'd hate good to people. have, okay, good people. Okay. Yeah. If it's good people, like if it's people where you're like, oh, they're wonderful. That's, yeah. they, they, they're going to do their best job they possibly can. And, and they understand the genre and 100%. I would prefer that yeah. just because, because life is short and you know there was mm. a film that i had that uh it was dave matthews I, I he had this idea they sent me the script i'm like no i i, I don't want to direct it i'm busy i was shooting bomb girls but um here's what you need to do to fix it and then they're like oh my gosh that's yes yes that's what we have to do and then they wanted me to write it. i'm like ah you, you guys should get a script so i ended up writing it and then i was going to direct it we had financing and then the financing fell out like you know a month like before two months before we were supposed to start shooting it was so much work location mm. scouting all yeah. that stuff writing rewriting and then <laughs> and then uh, another big movie studio just bought it a, a couple of years ago and they loved the script and, but then they wanted put me with a really fantastic producer and we rewrote it and i rewrote it a whole bunch of times and you know exactly to their specifications and then they're like oh we like your original script better <laughs> yeah hey do you want to do one more go with another group of people i'm like no <laughs> so so i know how the hollywood thing works yeah and I know that absolute control is not absolute control. And, and also I'm at the age cause then they're like, Oh, well they're doing it. Would you like, and I'm like, no, because I'm at the age where every, every day I have is precious. I, I, I don't know to do something start to finish. Let's yeah. say it takes you a couple of years. That's a couple of years of my life right. where I right. could be where, where it's long hours. Right. Yeah. I could be, could write another Cozy, novel. Like yeah. making all my delicious food, puttering yeah. around with my husband, <laughs> you know, being like, oh, I'm taking a break uh, from, yeah. you know, the page and I'm going to go sit outside and put my face up to the sun and, and pretend I'm in France for a little while. And then I'm going to come right. back. And, you know what I mean? Well, so, plus, I and, mean, and children, too. And if you're doing a movie, OK, here's another thing. Here's the thing people don't think about. If you're doing a movie and somebody beloved to you has a medical emergency oh. or you know, uh, dies, which has happened to me, you can't go to the funeral. You can't just leave. Yeah. You can't go to help one of your children if they're in trouble. You are stuck. Right. Well, it it seems like the approach that you are taking 
to life uh, from the things mm-hmm. that you've said, the way that you've talked about empathy and the way that you've mm-hmm. talked about uh, trying to see the the complicated layers under people and not judging them right away and the way that you've uh, talked about being in control of your time so that you can be the person you want to be. It sounds to me like it's pretty clear why you've been a successful novelist. All of that seems like good skills for a novelist to have in creating these characters that people want to spend time with. Well, thank you so much. Uh. Well, thank you. The book is called The Runaway Heiress. It's available at bookstores everywhere. Meg Tilly, thank you so much for joining me on The History of Literature. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jeff. Hmm, Okay, there we go. A double donation to the African Library Project, which really warms my heart. I'm very happy to be able to do that. My thanks to Meg Tilly for joining me. What a wonderful person she is. Please do check out her films and her books, including her newest, The Runaway Heiress, which is a great way to spend some time with Meg and her characters. She's a high-quality person, in my estimation, which is the best kind of person with whom to spend a little time, which, in fact, is why I'm so glad that you chose to join me today here on the History of Literature podcast. You're a high-quality person, that's what I'm saying. Did I need to spell that out for you? I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.